0: We need to be right now very explicit about connecting from a distance. Explicit and intentional about expressing in words the feeling of connection that we have because a lot of what we have is verbal right now. We don't have the face-to-face in the same way. We don't have the physical. We, don't, we can't communicate in all of the ways that we normally can. So explicitly saying that we are connected to each other, that we need each other, that we value each other, is very
1: important. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests, to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Dr. Shauna Springer, more widely known as Doc Springer, a psychologist and one of the world's leading experts in PTSD and trauma. She's done incredible work in the military community, working with veterans over the past decade, and she's partnered with the Stella Center to advance innovations in emotional trauma. I admire Doc and how she emphasizes the importance of connection and valuing each other, especially when we don't have all the same life experiences. We also talk about how corporate leaders can be hardwired the same way as warriors, who all have vulnerabilities and the need to find their tribe. Her work is also especially important during a time of anxiety in the pandemic. And when we support one another through hardships, no matter how big or small these actions are, we survive together. I know you're gonna love what she has to say. Here's our chat. Hi Shauna, it's so awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Hi Nicole, it's good to be here with you.
1: I'm so excited to be speaking with you because I know we've done a bit of work together in the past. We were specifically doing an ideation workshop together where we're talking about what first started off as talking about dynamic veteran career paths, but then as we delved deeper into the subject matter, we were really trying to understand What are the biggest disconnects when we're talking about making that transition from um, military service into civilian life? So I would love, love, love to hear more about your background, how you got into this work, and all the contributions that you're making to the veteran community.
0: Thank you. And I'll say that that ideation session was very elegantly administered and handled and managed by you and Will. I'm excited about what's going to come out of that in terms of uh, the publication and other things that, you know, you may have in the works in the next few months here. So yeah, I'd love to talk about anything related to my work. And one of the big things that's been really interesting for me in the last six or eight months is that, you know, I've really been focused on the military and veteran population for the last 10 years, obviously, with no anticipation of the global pandemic that has unfolded. And so much of the work that I've been doing with warriors and military families relates to so many of the challenges um, that we've had recently in terms of disruption and trauma and stealth anxiety, as I've been calling it, um, and other things that have just been overtaking us. So I just got back from Los Angeles last weekend to do the second recording of the audio version of my book, Warrior, and it is titled Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, based on a decade of work with countless warriors and their family members, walking with them through extreme traumas and disruptive change. And so really in the past month, um, I've been trying to get that recorded in an audio book so that for those who don't have time or maybe take in information through the audio means, they can do that. But let me give you something of substance around what's in the book. So this book is about all of the things that I really didn't understand about a decade ago when I started working with warriors. Um, I came in having spent you know, many years in school and having had a doctoral degree and thinking that everybody I was going to serve was going to be ready to go and that I had expertise to offer And that was just going to really work and be very seamless and quickly got (laughs) reminded that there is a deep cultural and trust gap between warriors and the healers, particularly civilians like myself who serve them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from the get go of what was eight years in the VA and then a few more years after that in different capacities, I've been working on how do we, build trust and form deep connection with people when we don't have the same life experiences as they do. So that's kind of a bigger theme in the book. And then I hit certain topics that we could talk about as you might have interest.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds incredible. And I'd love for you to speak more about what are some of these really high level points about the redefining your mission? Is that is that part of the, the audiobook that you're recording right now?
0: So redefineyourmission.com is Different thing, actually. Um, What that is, is taking the content in Warrior and the content of the book of a colleague of mine named Jennifer Tracy. And what we've envisioned is giving people a guided learning experience. Think of this as kind of a virtual book club, but with support and guidance. Okay. So for each chapter in each of our books, we've created a short video that summarizes of the key elements in that chapter and then we provide a short summary of key points for each chapter and questions that are really designed to facilitate not only insights people learning and thinking about their situations in new ways but connection and what we think could be cool is in this time of social separation there is still very much the possibility of connection and so if people could form little kind of circles or groups or units and read this together with their natural peer leaders, they can work through these questions. And as people will work through the questions in our books, it's going to bring in some um, elective disclosure, some sharing about their own stories, their own pain, their own challenges in a way that will, we hope really bring healing. Um, Because I really believe when you, you flush things out in the open, and you reckon with them directly, that's the way to heal. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. I'd love for you to speak more about the, the thought process behind the quote. And I quote you a lot whenever I speak with different people on the same subject that when we connect, we survive. I think it's such a short but yet incredibly critical way of identifying this is how people need to be able to move on and to heal. And when you're looking at it from a connection standpoint, I think that gets overlooked quite too often. And so I'd love for you to speak more about the thought process behind that. Yeah.
0: So that is if you know I had one tagline for my writing and my work, that would be it. You know, you're very observant and The phrase, when we connect, we survive, is at the core of so much of what I'm trying to share with people and really emphasize um, through this work. And it's both kind of a big concept, you know, that we are social beings and we need that connection, um, but it also has really practical implications for the work of suicide prevention and for wellness and thriving and coming through times of disruptive change. And the other part of this is I think, practicing and being humble enough to ask for what we need when we're struggling. And I'll give you an example of that, that just occurred to me yesterday, which was this, you know, at the start of the pandemic, I think like many of us, I was of the mind, well, if we all shelter in place, this will be over, you know, in a couple months. I didn't think we'd be dealing with it for six months or longer. You know, when is the end of this? We really don't know. And so in the short distance, I thought, well, I'm just going to dig in and like share what I know with people because my work is relevant to the struggle right now. So I've written or done podcasts like every day, done you know, more than 40 pieces on anxiety related to COVID in the past few months. And as a result, been sort of running myself into the ground and the, the, the sort of whole health approach to life has been lost in the last six months for me. And my physical fitness is often in my situation, kind of the orphan in the basement of my life where like, that's the thing I will not feed or I will not nurture the minute I get stressed. So once again, I'm like, you know, trying to get this information out and and I get out of balance and I realized this yesterday. And so I thought, well, I talk about when we connect, we survive and we also thrive. So I reached out to seven people in my personal pit crew or kitchen cabinet and said to them, I really need some support in a specific way. Can you, for the next 12 weeks, just put a reminder in your phone? And I asked for a particular day from each of them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I had kind of the week covered. And uh, just send me a text to like take 10 seconds when that alarm goes off. And just send me a text, say, get up, take a walk you know, we need you to stay in the fight, we need you to, you know, be healthy, don't want you to stroke out, you know, whatever, just 10 seconds to remind me to get out of that mode I've been in of working all the time at my desk. And so this morning, I wake up and it's ding, you know, my cell phone goes off. And, okay, so there's somebody saying, make sure you take a walk today. And then I'm like, Okay, I, I will. That's, that's helpful. I'm gonna promise that I will I text back, I promise I will. And then I get into my work and then somebody else, bing, you know, like so somebody's like really like hearing me and like stepping up because, you know, I didn't even ask for that on this day, but they're like, Doc, get up and go walking right now. So I did. So I dropped to my work for a while and I went out and took a walk. And now whatever else happens today, I know that I kept that promise and I know that I did something that was healthy for me. And even though I did it by myself in isolation, I did it in the way that makes me reminded of the connection that I have with people I care about and trust who have my back. And so just simple things like that, we can do to make practical connection be a part of our daily rhythm. And I think that's really critical right now.
1: That's beautiful. And I love how it's so simple, but it's so effective. And we think about all the different use cases we think about all the different ways that those simple reminders can be applied to not just your physical health, but also to your mental health as well. We just recently did a live stream and someone made the comment that we should be treating our mental health like our physical health. And so you have physical fitness and you also have mental fitness. I'd love to know what you think about that and what can we do in order to to really help improve our mental fitness as well.
0: Yeah, I totally 100% agree. First of all, I've actually come to see post-traumatic stress disorder as an injury, as post-traumatic stress injury. I don't see it as an invisible issue now that I understand that we can see it with the right kind of scanning technology, that a healed brain looks different from an injured brain. Um, So I don't think that it's a disorder. I think it's a a biological injury, trauma is a biological injury that's sustained by changes in our thinking and behavior. So there's a biopsychosocial approach that we've talked about in the field for many years as healers, but I don't know that it's been realized in the fullness of its potential. So the biological piece, let's take trauma for example, because this is a topic I work with a lot. So there's the biological piece of trauma And one of the treatments, not the only one, but one of the most promising ones I've learned about is a treatment that is a go-to treatment in certain special forces units. It's called ganglion block, and it's an injection of a commonly used anesthetic, an FDA-approved anesthetic that's routinely used when women are in labor for epidurals. It's injected into a cluster of nerves in the neck, and it reboots the adrenaline system. And if that sounds like the X-files, I would say it did to me at one time, but I saw it with my own eyes and I've seen it and treated about 50 cases with the pioneering physician that really has been leading the charge on that. And other colleagues as well in special forces units that have been pioneers in this work. We've published together and um, this is an amazing, promising potential treatment that few Americans know about because it hasn't hit a tipping point. I think because most of that research has been done in military facilities and places like Fort Bragg that are like area 51 to most Americans, you know, just sort of outside of conscious awareness. So I've been treating with these physicians the biological part of that in combination with what I do. So the combination of calming people down when they're chronically overactivated from trauma and then coming in when they're calm and doing the psychological restructuring of thoughts and behaviors is extremely powerful. I think it's gonna be the new standard of care once this kind of hits a tipping point. But there's the biological, which we're, we're doing the stellar ganglion block for, and then there's the, the psychological, which is really what my book is about. It's what all my work is about, is what is the psychology of this particular group? What are the unique vulnerabilities they have to not thriving? How, how do we need to reach them psychologically to help them get the most potential in their lives? And I know about different subgroups, but what I've really been focused on lately is about those who serve in the military who are wired like warriors. But here's the interesting thing. Corporate leaders are sometimes wired very much like warriors and they, um, the good ones are there to serve and really build team and, lift everyone up and create an effective fighting force for the mission thereafter. So there's similarity between warriors and the good corporate leaders, as well as first responders and people across society that are kind of wired like warriors and those insights and providing those um, specific examples of here's how you have that conversation. Here's how you understand the issues in that issue at hand, you know, are ways to, create the psychological understanding that will move people towards growth. And then the social part is, is frankly, just as important to me. It's creating that network of people, as we've talked about, you know, in the Forbes Ignite ideation session, creating what we were calling the pit crew. Um, But it's the people in your life that you, you deeply trust that you can take your armor off with and say anything that you need without fear of judgment or that they will think any less of you. And identifying those people and then practicing social connection with them on a on a regular rhythm of your life, a regular basis, is so critical for mental health and wellness. So absolutely, 100%, see it as just another form of wellness in addition to the physical and something we should be attending to.
1: Absolutely. And you talk about that personal pit crew or that, cabinet of people who you who are trusted that you can take off your armor around. Essentially, I love that analogy because as we know that there could be the most amazing there can be the most amazing solutions out there, but sometimes it is a barrier for people to even have to ask for help. And so just having these small circles circles of of support structures, is a way to to mitigate that and I'd love to know what are some examples that you've seen where this has really shown a huge impact on someone's life well
0: yeah again it sort of started with warriors you know with groups of um, in particular marines that had been meeting once a month or not once a month once a year for their annual reunions and I was invited to come into that circle and I built that trust with them and have been able to come in as an advisor to them and a partner in in the healing they're doing and have just seen the benefit of being in a place where you don't have to censor yourself at all. And when you take off your armor and you're with your tribe and you can say and feel anything that you need to feel, then that's when you get insights. When you're um, sort of open and unguarded from that kind of fear and impression management you can really begin to heal. And it can be a propeller to getting treatment in a clinical sense because if enough people say, you know, I have a good doc and it really helped me, and, you know, treatment can make a big difference as part of your wellness plan, not the only thing you do, then that also carries momentum when people in your tribe tell you that. So it started there, but then it's really been very clear to me that the same thing is beneficial for leaders. Um, I actually think corporate leaders have some of the greatest vulnerabilities that they feel they have to you know, sort of carry the strength or the sense of, you know, I have it all together or I have to go quietly into my corner and sort of get myself sorted out and present this like strong face all the time. It's a real vulnerability for leaders. And if they can find their tribe as well, the people in their lives, other leaders or other people that they feel they can take their armor off with, it's profoundly impactful, not only for what they can learn about themselves and how they can regulate their own emotional state as they go through a time of disruptive change, but how they can model that and help lead others through a similar process. So it really, you know, these are really universal principles, I think, that began with people in extreme situations, but applying corporate settings um, just as much.
1: Mm-hmm. I love the analogy of the tribe. We talked about this a couple of times. You were saying how essentially when you're moving out of the military and you're transitioning into civilian life, you're losing your tribe. And that parallels with a lot of other different shifts in different people's lives. And we talk about the time of COVID right now during a pandemic, a lot of people are going through lots of different shifts in their lives. And so I agree 100% that these are universal principles. And I'd love to just understand some of the similarities and differences that you're finding with the work that you've done specifically with veterans and within the past couple of months, where you're investigating this trauma and the the life changes and the shifts that are happening with people all over the world? Yeah. Okay, so let me first talk a little bit
0: about tribe, because it's important to me to be culturally respectful, and sort of communicating the fact that, you know, this is not my term. This is um, Sebastian Junger, who wrote the book tribe, it's not even his term. Um, I just want to acknowledge that The concept of a tribe is something that's from ancient society meant something within certain cultures. And uh, loosely speaking, that has meant a a group of people who survive through interdependence, through their functional interdependence, and they are willing to make sacrifices for each other um, because the good of the whole is really very important to them for their well-being and for their survival. So across cultures. I think that is one common theme in the the concept of tribe. And then Sebastian Junger wrote this really beautiful book called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, where he really presents the argument that in the military, there is a sense of tribe in the way that they become interdependent with each other. And he would define tribe as the people that you would give the last of your food to. And I like that definition a lot, but I would add something to it because in my use of that concept, um, I talk about how the power of the tribe is greater than despair. And the tribe is really, um, if we turn to those we love and trust during the valleys in our life, that's where when we connect, we survive. So to me, the tribe is the group of people in your life that you take your armor off with. And if you want to think about who that is for you, just for a second, you can have a thought exercise of if you'd done something that you were really ashamed of, it just burns you up with shame to think of this thing you did. And you had to tell five people in your life about this thing that you did that was so shameful. Who would you go to? Who would you avoid like the plague? The people you would go to that you would feel like I could tell them this thing. And they would hear it in the context of love and unconditional acceptance of me, even if that thing I did doesn't match with like my character or who they know me to be, that their love and their understanding of who I am is greater than any one thing I've done. And so I'm free to talk about whatever I need to talk about in whatever ways I need to talk about. To me, a healer offers that to the people they walk with. At the basic level, a healer listens for the hidden pain, that story behind the story, not the first thing you usually hear, but the thing you really need to understand that's usually loaded with shame. And they hear that story without any judgment or reaction that would suggest that they think of you any differently. And you just work from there to get to where you want to go. So I was a little (laughs)
1: long-winded. I think I forgot your question. No, no,
0: that's... Can you bring me back
1: to your question? You, you actually just inspired me. This actually leads me to my next question. You described the the notion that we could all potentially be healers. And when we're talking about, you're describing how if you were so ashamed of this one thing that you did and you could pick only five people that you could feel that you could trust that you could tell this to that's your, that's your tribe. That's your cabinet. That's your personal pit crew, whatever you want to call it. Those are the people that are there for you and accept you with, with um, unconditional love and understanding. And this really leads us to how everyone, especially those who are listening, everyone can be healers toward one another. If we understood and we listened to each other, past that hidden pain because like you said it goes several layers deep not just the perceived challenge but the real challenges that are happening underneath the surface then we'd all we'd all contribute to a better world we'd all contribute to better understanding better healing um better progress in society as well because many a lot of conflict is all just due to a lack of understanding and there's a lot of trauma that people are projecting and also reacting to. And it's a vicious cycle. It is.
0: I totally agree. And it's never been more urgent than right now.
1: We have more trauma
0: in our society, layers of trauma. You know, I I just remembered your question, which was about how does what I've learned from warriors relate to what's happening now? So you think about the layers of trauma that are stacked on top of each other now in terms of this invisible enemy, this need to be constantly hypervigilant, this loss of people you love that, you know, you you couldn't see coming, whether due to COVID or other causes, your grief is cut off, all of these levels of trauma that we're going through. And we've talked about in recent years, the idea of suicide prevention, um, being, you know, an all hands on deck, um, kind of a public health approach. Um, Some of us have been writing about this for years, that, you know, there's stuff going back to 2015, 2016, about that I've talked about, we need an all hands on deck, we need to take this out of a get thee to the doctor approach, uh, the doctor is savior, and just make sure you get to that mental health provider, and they'll, you know, save your life, to really shifting the paradigm dramatically, to expand, as you're saying to we can all be healers, depending on what we know and what we understand. And the we need to be, for the people that we, we care about, that we love in our lives, we need to evolve to an ability to offer that kind of trust and that kind of safety. Because one of the things I've learned in working with people in crisis is that many people are very good at hiding it they are um, warriors and certain kinds of people, leaders, are, they get really good practice at compartmentalizing their pain and you might never see it. And so looking for the signs is not going to be the way that you can always help someone that you care about. It's creating and practicing a way of relating to each other where you talk about what you need in reciprocal vulnerable ways with the people in your tribe so that when the big stuff happens, it's not a new behavior. It, it's not this terrifying thing you have to say, by the way, I've been on the ropes with my demons, and um, I have this voice in my head that's telling me that my death would be a gift to those I love, that I'm the problem that needs to go. Like, that should not be the first thing <laughs> that you're saying to the people in your tribe. That will happen, that kind of disclosure, if you have years of practice talking about the things that you need on a day-to-day basis during normal struggles during normal valleys that we already have in our lives that kind of disclosure will be the fruit of that practice and not just like a one-time thing that people are likely to do if they don't have a history of practicing that
1: does that make sense that makes that 100% makes sense these types of things shouldn't always be reactionary when you have to deal with your your own demons and you decide that you want to reveal this and you want to share this with the people that are closest to you, that shouldn't be the first thing that you share with your group. The things that you should be sharing are the everyday types of examples of vulnerability because when you you can't be vulnerable with one another if it's not reciprocated. And so it just takes, it's a matter of practice, practicing this behavior so that it isn't so scary. What are we not hearing, especially when we're trying to be vulnerable with each other? The things that are unsaid are just as important as the things that are being said. It all deals with the particular types of behaviors. And I think what you just said is beautiful. And there is a time and a place and there's always a way to, to be able to reach out, to support one another, to be vulnerable with one another, so that it doesn't happen when it's too late.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the things I say are not met with support by people like myself. If I say there's a difference between a doctor and a doc and all that education you got, it might not mean anything to the person sitting across from you if you don't earn the trust. And you have to lay aside your expertise and listen eloquently to what they have to say until they're ready to share with you that hidden pain. It's not always going to get support. Or saying, you know, I really think we need to accelerate into conflict. I think we need to get comfortable with conflict or practice vulnerability. And if you're not practicing it as kind of a daily rhythm with the people you care about in your life, you're not building the muscle and you're going to maybe need that muscle because we all go through times of challenge. And if you're not practiced in that, it's going to be a really hard thing to do, maybe impossible for some people. You know, some of these messages, I think, require us to go through a bit of a paradigm shift about what healing is and what our role is as people in a collected, connected society with each other. And the kinds of risks we need to start taking in our own um, interpersonal lives to get there are substantial. I just hope we can do
1: it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I really do believe that we can because we're at an inflection point right now where there's so much global upheaval with what's happening in the world. There's a lot of opportunities for shifts and where there are challenges, there are opportunities. We all as a people can start to listen to one another, seeing past, again, like you, like you mentioned, those hidden pains, seeing past um, what's on the outside, what's on the exterior as what's merely projection, at sometimes, <laughs> and not all the time, but sometimes, really just being a human being to one another is it so bad to be human to one another? And there's, there's a term that you, that you mentioned that I never heard before, which I love, which is impression management. That might be the most universal thing to corporate life <laughs> if I've ever heard one. It's an incredibly tricky thing because the term saving face all has everything to do with that.
0: Way before the years of social media, right? And LinkedIn and profiles This is like an age-old thing that people have done with others who they perceive to have more power than them, right? Is manage how they come across and what is being perceived. Um, And I realize that's a reality for many people in hierarchical structures. What I'm suggesting is to find the people in your life that you can lay that aside and take off your armor and be whoever you need to be, because that's where you, where you create yourself. And that's where you, come to realizations that can help heal you and, and give you hope and motivation you know, as you move forward and grow you through pain is in those kinds of circles of deep trust where there's that kind of um, disclosure. I worry about how disconnected people are getting even from themselves. When their impression management and what they're putting out to the world in their profiles, in their social media life and in their avatar, is so different from who they are. Um, I wonder if what fills that um, delta, that that change or that space between the two, is not a feeling of shame. You know, what makes us feel like we have to project something that isn't who we are, and what happens when reality collides with the false impressions that we might be putting out? It takes a lot of psychic energy to manage your impression. Versus to say things like some of the most relaxing things you can say are like, I could be wrong, but this is what I'm seeing. Just that kind of phrase. It's like been a wonderfully liberating phrase in my own life as a professional because I don't know everything. And when I'm wrong, I give myself the cover of knowing that I'm just human like everybody else. So I'm making my best assessment based on the data that I have, but I could be wrong, and any of us could be wrong, Um, or saying, I'm sorry, I blew it on that. The ability to say these kinds of things actually gives us cover, but people are so afraid to go into that space, and it could help them so much to just achieve a new level of freedom in their relationships.
1: I would consider that the first step. The first step is to be unapologetically you. The second is to really identify where the disconnect is between who you are and how you portray yourself. That should be, you should be your whole self and bring your whole self to whatever you do, whether that's work, whether that's to your relationships. It is entirely exhausting <laughs> to really just be challenged by impression management. So I would consider that the second step, which is just connecting with yourself. And the third, I would say, from what I've been hearing is finding your tribe. So with those three steps, I feel like we can all take those steps so we can all be healers and really provide that needed support to one another.
0: Yeah, I would add this though, Nicole, for your consideration. I do think there's a cost in terms of our time and our energy when we impression manage. And at the same time, um, I think the point is to be aware of when we're doing that and why. Because there are people in the world that are not safe. And so one of the other little things that I've worked on is taking a book called Safe People and with permission of the authors, turning that into a profile on emotional safety to help us to think through what is a safe person? What's an emotionally safe person? What does that look like? Because the realistic uh, truth is that there are people in our lives, whether they're an authority over us or peers, that are not necessarily safe and that we do need to be careful around. And so just being aware of who we're doing that with, and when and why, um, and not just feeling like we have to compulsively manage our impression with everybody, and that there's people in our life where we don't ever have to do that, I think is such a protective factor. um, Because in reality, you know, we have to navigate different kinds of relationships where we don't always have that trust.
1: I've learned, I always learn so much from you with each and every conversation that we have. And so I really appreciate the time that you've taken and I hope we can do this again very soon.
0: Thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate you as well.
1: That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.